just literally 10 minutes before the auction, a gentleman walks up to me saying, hey, I've got great news. A friend of mine, a very, very famous billionaire entrepreneur, gave me a buy bid up to 5 million. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Collector's Gene Radio. I'm your host, Cameron Steiner, and I'm joined by my co-host and brother, Ryan. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. That's right. And as always, please subscribe and leave a review for us. It truly helps. We hope you enjoy the pod. Let's go. So this week we're chatting with Aurelbox. Now, if you're not too familiar with the watch world, you may not know who Aurelbox is but I don't want to downplay his importance in our generation at all. So if you haven't done any due diligence, hit pause, go on YouTube, and type in the guy's name. Aurel has an extensive career in watches, and in just the last few years, he and his wife Livia have partnered with Philips Auction House to help run their watch department. Now, Aurel is, of course, a collector of watches himself, but instead of talking about his own collection, we wanted to talk about, you know, the psychology of collecting. You know, what makes someone go further than they had planned at an auction? You know, what about the little nuances that makes a collector buy a piece that to the naked eye may match the other 10 that they already currently own? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of aspects to collecting that I feel a lot of us don't really think about or talk about. So if you pause the show and you went and learned more about Aurel uh, when we had mentioned it above... You would have found that Aurel has auctioned off some of the most important pieces known to the market. From Paul Newman's Paul Newman Daytona to many others, he has dealt with collectors and buyers of all kinds. So this episode, we really try to dig deep here, and it has been one of our most exciting conversations thus far. He has a wealth of knowledge, and I'm sure we are going to have him back at some point. So here it is, Aurel Box for Collectors Dream Radio. All right, Aurel, thank you so much for joining us today on Collector's Gene Radio. It's uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have someone of uh, your caliber on here joining us today. Well, it's a huge pleasure. Thank you both for having me on your show, I shall say. Could you give us a little bit of background for, for the guests that might not know you in, in the watch community and a little background on yourself and how you moved from loving watches to becoming one of the most what I would say, beloved watch uh, auctioneers today. Well, that's already a huge compliment, probably even a burden on on my shoulders to hear that. So I'm Swiss. I'm uh, approaching my 50th next year. Feels like I'm really old. I'm coming from the Swiss-German part of uh, Switzerland, not French, not Italian speaking. And watches came in really early in my life, thanks to my dad. My dad was a collector of all things, mechanical especially, including vintage cars, electric trains, steam machines, cameras, radios, whatever he could take apart that had wheels and levers, it was in our household. And as a teenage boy, I started following my dad to shows, pawnbrokers, flea markets, and somehow gradually um, slipped into this world. And I have to admit, I, I became addicted. Then I studied law and business in Switzerland, uh, but spent actually much more time looking out for watches than reading books. 
And then came a life-changing moment when an auction house was looking uh, for a young specialist to lead their Geneva division or department. I didn't really want the job, but I was encouraged by friends and family. Why don't you go and find out if you're actually good enough for that job with all the time you spend so far in your life on watches? So I went, and after, I can't even tell you, half a dozen of interviews in Geneva, Zurich, London, they called me and said, you've got the job. So I took the job and thought, well, maybe just a couple of months, find out how it is, and then go back and become a successful lawyer make plenty of money and buy beautiful watches. Well, some 26 years later, I'm talking to you guys. <laughs> now, what I'm doing for a living, I didn't even mention it. I'm um, Together with my wife, Livia, we are both watch nerds and are now, as in the capacity of consultants, working with Philips Auction House in charge of their watch department since 2000 and late 2014. So auctioneers. And how did uh, your your company, Box and, and Russo, come to partner with Philips? Well, that's a really interesting uh, story, and it shows how much uh, in our industry, I think in the art world, the collecting world, it's all down to personal relationships. We were together, Livy and I, for 10 years precisely at Christie's, heading their watch department. And after 10 years, we felt, you know, we grew the department from below $10 million to $130 million. We achieved what we felt we had to achieve. But the bureaucracy, the corporate world was a little bit on the heavy side for us. And we decided to leave, thinking that we're starting our tiny little thing, quiet, discreet, more work-life balance and all the stuff. And left and were completely off the radar for six months until the newly appointed CEO of Philips called us and said, hey guys, do you want to join Philips and start a watch department? And we're like, sorry, we just left the auction world to have a quiet life. Don't ask us to start all over again. But he happened to be Ed Dolman, whom I knew from my years at Christie's because he was the Christie CEO before. A fantastic man, amazing leader, knows his business, really, I would say a friend. And yeah, it was tempting and the challenge was worth um, accepting. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. So, and you know, we're, we're personally really stoked to have you on because you offer such a unique perspective into the you know psyche of a collector. You have the collector who, you know, travels across the world to see auction previews and you have the phone bidder and then you have, you know, the local collector who who shows up. Do you find commonalities between the different types? I think the first thing to really admit is there isn't just one type of collector. No matter if you're collecting $500 watches, $50,000 watches or $5 million watches, there is something that connects all of them. It's the thrill, the hunt, the discovery, the battle, the study, the discussions, the camaraderie, scholarship, and so forth and so forth. I say to some extent, regrettably, more and more also financial element involved because you cannot deny that many watch collectors have done commercially better with their watch collection than in their day jobs, which is... It's part of our world, and I'm, I know that there are some people who have earned 
over a period of 10 years more with the increase of value of their home than actually at their job. So it's also part of this you know, challenge. Now, with that, a new type of spec collector has also joined our market. So they all love the competition. They love the hunt. They love the unexpected uh, around the corner. And I think it's all in all a big family. I mean, we have executives from Wall Street. We have students. And they all are one big family. So thousands of facets and still one sort of core heart value they all share. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I I think um, from the standpoint of the different types of collectors that come in, in a way, they're all there for the same reason, whether it's the same item or the same purpose, right? But do you think that collectors usually come into auctions per se and stick to their plans? Or do the competitive juices just kind of keep going and, and usually reign supreme at the end of the day? I think those who are really hardcore collectors, they come with the best of intentions to go, let's say, you know, 46 is the estimate. I'll go to 8,000. I calculate the buyer's premium. I calculate local tax. The whole thing costs me at home, let's say, all-inclusive $11,000. And then I see them completely blow their plans out of the window and go 12, 15, 20, 30. And... I always wonder, poor you, can't you just be more disciplined? It's sort of like if you have a chocolate bowl in front of you and you say, okay, I have one after dinner, and then you just keep on eating until the whole bowl is empty. Sounds like me playing blackjack. Exactly. It's, 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 it's addictive. And the crazy thing is, as an auctioneer, I should be knowing better how dangerous auctions can be sometimes when you're too much in love with an object. And yet, when my wife and I discover something in another area than watches. It could be a painting, a piece of furniture, something that we like and we'd like to have at home. We say, okay, we go to $2,000, not a penny more. And suddenly three, four, five, I'm like, stop, stop, stop. So <laughs> I think that these emotions and, and probably just above collecting is literally only love. I can't think of something that makes people more behave more irrationally than, than collecting. And from what you've seen with collectors and, and the auction world and, and whatever you've encountered in your time, what do you think are some of the main reasons that really drive somebody to collect? Whether, whether it's watches or cards or art or wine, what is it exactly? This is one of the most difficult, one of the best questions you can ask and that I think every collector should ask himself and I should ask myself I think you're literally either born with it or, or, or not. It's really like falling in love. And, and, and sorry if I sound too philosophical and too romantic now. It's something you cannot control. It's, it's like hormones. I mean, why do some kids collect baseball cards and others find it really boring to walk around with a stack of cards, coins, stamps? It just either makes click or it doesn't. And I don't think you can rationally explain it. What might be in there? A bit of nostalgia, 
Of course, there's a sense of possession. I have it. I mean, how many collectors start a conversation with I have it? I don't find it particularly humble, but the possession aspect is important. Then the hunt. The fact that so many people have very fulfilling lives, Monday to Friday, and I mean that from a fatigue point of view, but also the space their job occupies in their minds and, and, and hearts, or a family life, and yet burden themselves with another challenge on top of the challenges they already have, and invest considerable amount of energy, time, and means, means that it's stronger than their will. So in a, in a positive sense, uh, it, it, you can call it love, and in a negative sense, you can call it addiction. Yeah. With collecting with me, it's such a, it's like you're saying, it's such an obsession thing that I really can't explain to people. But yet, like my closest friends and my girlfriend who's forced me to move most of my stuff into a storage room knows, I love sharing it with people. When I show them a piece that I have or things that I have, I think they understand how much I love it by how excited I am to show it. And I just, it's really unexplainable for me but it kind of lends to what I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, there are people who amass things, you know, regardless of, I'd say, taste on particular items. It's like they, they collect things and they need to have each and every one regardless. And then there's people like myself who amass, but I personally need to co connect to the items. Now, does an auction setting, though, throw a curveball to collectors that have either of those philosophies? First of all, let, let, let me chime in on something you said that gives you that amazing satisfaction of sharing your passion, sharing your knowledge, sharing your collection. I think the sharing part is hugely important. There are, of course, these elusive, very quiet, discreet, maybe even introverted collectors who just have it all for their own and don't share it. But you're right. Sharing is important. Yet... Why is there such a big community? And I think because many collectors, maybe their wives or husbands or kids or friends, don't understand it, don't get it, tell them, stop bothering me with your watch collection or your <laughs> glass collection, baseball card collection. I've seen it. I've had it. Thank you. Which is why they look out for peers. Because there, they know this is the most fruitful soil for a dialogue. It's echoing. It's coming back. There's, there's nurturing one the other. So this is why those communities are so important. And this is why, despite the amazing comfort that we at Philips offer clients to bid from their living room, from their couch, from wherever they are with their mobile uh, devices, they still travel thousands of miles to come to Geneva because this is when for half a week or even a week, they can hang out with their buddies and feel they're fully understood. They're no longer seen as freaks. Do we welcome this all these facets um, at Philips? Yes, I think we do. We host panel discussions before auctions. We, we offer content that is not commercial, where, where basically we don't sell them anything, whether it's with editorials, with videos, with everything we do, even a reception, if you wish. We bring together collectors. They actually sometimes trade watches during such a reception that we don't get anything out. But it's to celebrate that wonderful hobby. So I hope that collectors think that we are welcoming them and that we offer them food 
not just for their stomach, but food for their minds and hearts. I feel like since social media has really had a huge presence in collecting anything, I mean, watches and specifically have gotten a huge social media presence. And, you know, it's it's been said in multiple times that it's less of a show off and it's it's really become a community. And there, of course, there are people who, who show off and, and teach their own. That's okay. But with auctions, do you find that collectors are coming in and people are purchasing things to to show off their collection after they purchase it? Or do you find that a lot of these collectors are coming in and trying to outbid sometimes these so-called show-off collectors? For example, people that are purchasing these items just to say, hey, I've bought this, check this out. Or do you find that people who are are serious collectors are coming in saying things like, you you don't deserve this and I'm going to make sure that you don't have it? Absolutely, we've seen this. Um, And it's sometimes like a bullfight or two lions. I'm I'm thinking of that, um, the the Lion King, where it's about supremacy in the jungle. I have clients who say, I'm not coming to the auction room, so if I get outbid, I'm not getting humiliated. And if I'm competing, they don't know who I am, so they cannot pick a fight with me. And we've seen giants in the auction, well, in the watch collecting worlds clash in our sale rooms where maybe a watch was expected to make a million and it went to a million and a half and the last 500,000 were purely, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, in, a, in a distinguished way, a contest of, of some kind. <laughs> you can imagine which word would be for the word contest. Who can you know, win the battle. It has happened. Now, is it good for the market? Well, we have that in so many other ways um, where in sports, you want to just muscle yourself um, and, and win the medal. In business, um, who, who, who is the merger who, who, who got the, the, the deal before another law firm or bank? Well, sometimes for the prettiest girl at school, two teenage boys get into a fight. I think most of us are competitive. The word pride, of course, plays a role. I guess it's something that we have in our genes. And look at the animal world. How many birds uh, sort of show off their feathers and how many elephants uh, make their movements with their ears and, and, and threaten the other? It's about to you know, show who is... Who's the the strongest, the fittest? Do you find that like, say like large companies can ruin competition with, you know, humongous budgets and purchasing important pieces for their museums, you know, like Rolex and such, but like, does that have a, a cause and effect? Well, now in the last nearly three decades that I'm uh, doing this, I've seen it all. And yes, there were times when certain companies decided quite abruptly, let's build a museum and let's throw millions into this new project. And there were times when they just came and bulldozed everyone else in the sale room. However, this is something that I would really put into the category past. 
today, if I look at even the 2000, you know, 2010 to 2020, the last decade, we probably had over 10 important manufacturers and museums participate in our auctions, securing sometimes quite commercial pedestrian models simply because they were missing it, sometimes historic pieces. And quite interestingly, on 1,200 watches that Philip sold in the last years on average, you probably won't get more than 10 watches that museums buy, meaning 1%. I see lots and lots of museums being outbid by collectors because they have budgets and often shareholders and you, they cannot just you know spend money without a proper justification. And I don't think it's different at other auction houses. My best guess is that 1% of the global volume of watches offered and sold at auction are of interest or are being bought by museums. I don't think to conclude that that 1% is harmful to the market, is influencing in a negative sense the market, as, as in you know, distorting the, the value of, 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 of watches are making it unattractive for collectors to compete. It's just a small group of good competitive bidders amongst thousands. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, archives are important for sure, but I guess uh, when, when you think about companies having board members and investors and things like that, it's not just uh, free cash flow all the time. So on the other end of that, for collectors personally, do you think that passion supersedes having the means to collect? Let's be realistic. If you are unfortunate to wake up one morning and you find yourself infected with the virus to collect impressionist paintings and your bank account shows a $1,000 balance, well, then I'm really sorry for you because then you have a problem that you cannot fix. The equation won't work. You won't become an impressionist art collector. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> to, to blow that dream. Passion is one important element. Knowledge, information, or scholarship is important. And regrettably, the means. And what I see is that it's seldom, really seldom, the richest guy who wins the battle. And I see it more often that the guy who is the most scholar or the most passionate who brings the, 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 the watch home after a fierce battle. So if you don't have passion and if you don't have knowledge, all the millions and billions in your bank won't make you a better or more competitive collector because you can't even understand why you're doing I know Philips like tends to do a good job, you know, with lot descriptions, but I'm sure you get emails every auction from collectors. Is there reasoning behind some auction houses leaving out, you know, key information that collectors inquire about? Like, doesn't that, in a sense, create more headaches for the auction house during a busy time? Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you think Philips is doing a good job. It's been one of our key missions to provide as much text information, but also visual information, as in images or even videos, but not just to 
get rid of the workload nearer to the auction, but to simply create a platform of information that is so rich that even those who are living thousands of miles away who cannot touch and inspect the watch personally feel comfortable and properly prepared to bid in comfort on a watch at the other end of the world. Yes, of course, there's also practical reasons because sooner or later you have to provide all that information. I think an auction house that does not provide proper information about its watches is either lazy or ignorant or doesn't understand the market or all of the three. I think it's key to enable a collector to bid in full confidence. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so to, to piggyback on that, let, let's go back to 2017 when you had the pleasure of selling the Paul Newman Daytona, arguably one of the most, if not the most, talked about auction sale in at least the last decade, maybe. Can you describe for us the, the energy in the room, the intensity ends up being two phone bidders unknown to each other, uh, to, to what I can speculate. Can you just give everybody who, who wasn't there and who hasn't watched maybe the video footage of that, what, what that was like? Uh, with great pleasure. Thanks for asking. Yes, it was insane. It was just absolutely unbelievably insane. The build-up, it was our inaugural auction in New York. Uh, Phillips never staged a watch auction in New York before. So that already was enough of adrenaline and stress to our New York team, um, led by Paul Butros, uh, but also to the international team. The sale room that Phillips New York at Park Avenue has is really generous in terms of its size. Uh, you can put in easily hundreds of collectors. There are also the same sale rooms that the important art auctions um, in the past, <laughs> pre-COVID, uh, hosted. And somehow we get, uh, sort of, we start feeling that, or we hear actually that already hours before the auction, people were queuing outside on Park Avenue to secure a seat. The second thing that was pretty surprising to me, we have seen people whom I've never spoken to or known that they were watch collectors come including Forbes 100 billionaires, priced Hollywood stars, celebrities, as if it was the, the Met Gala, like if it was the, like the, the, the social event of the season in New York. The pressure was huge. Um, blogs, uh, websites, communities were speculating 2 million, 3 million, 4 million, 5 million, and Every blogger, in order to even be heard or read, had to top the previous predictions by at least a million dollars. Whether he was right or wrong didn't matter. So by the time the auction was the auction day arrived, numbers were so inflationary in a, such an inflationary way thrown out that everybody said, "Well, if it doesn't make ten million, it's a huge disappointment." Having said that, we, in an inner circle, thought, "Well." If we do three, four, five, six million, we've done a good job. It would already be the world record for a Rolex. And just literally 10 minutes before the auction, a gentleman walks up to me saying, hey, I've got great news. A friend of mine, a very, very famous, 
billionaire entrepreneur gave me a buy bid up to 5 million. Why don't I just say 5 million as an opening bid? And I literally told him, don't you dare doing that. You're going to ruin the auction. Just continue bidding as it's your turn, but don't uh, ruin my, my, my party here. And obviously he and I were shocked when the auction started that after my opening $1 million bid, the telephone, the first telephone bid was $10 million. I didn't quite hear, was it two or 10? There was noise in the room. <laughs> I had to ask, did you say 2 million? And my colleague on the telephone said, uh, no, sir, $10 million. And that moment I thought I was going to have like a heart attack because quickly doing the math, $10 million plus the buyer's premium would place it in the opening bid on top of the podium as the world's highest price ever achieved for a watch. So on one hand, I didn't want to ruin the party and wanted to also tell Tiffany, my colleague, specialist Tiffany Toe, can you please go step by step? But at the same time, I said to myself, if I reject that bid, then the bidding may stop at five. And rightly, uh, uh, James Cox and Nell Newman, who sat like just in the second row in front of me, would say, why did you throw out millions for our charities um, out of the window? But at the same time, I look at the Italian gentleman in the first row who had that $5 million bid, and literally on his lips, I could see WTF. Like, why do you take <laughs> her $10 million bid when you threatened me that you would kick me out of the room if I would start with five? So in the end, I sort of made a sweet smile at him, accepted the $10 million, and that moment, the mobile phones shut up, Cameras went on, clapping, yelling, screaming, shouting. I mean, literally like if your football or baseball team scored and won the championship. And from that moment on, I realized I was probably going to have a good night. A colleague, Natalie, came very elegantly and quite quickly with $11 million. So I thought, okay, that's not just a one-off. There's even more bidders. 12 million, a third telephone, 13, and then it continued in 500,000s, and then it got a little bit sort of stickier, but we got it all the way to a hammer of 15.5 million with bars premium. It would make close to 18 million. I don't know what happened to my blood circulation, my heart, my breathing. Probably if, if you had, you know, these, these sort of um, patchy um, with the cables that the doctors put on your chest and arms when they check you out, I guess I would have just been a flatliner for a minute or two there. The adrenaline was, was close to sickening, but at the same time, it was most likely the most memorable and best rostrum experience um, I've ever had. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I can't probably tell you how many times I've uh, we've both watched the video That's and uh, I, I get adrenaline just from from watching that and to, to have the family in the room as well which is um, probably not common most of the times uh, I, I would assume for, for something of this caliber just really special yeah there was a bit of pressure of course to see them to smile at them to, to get their smile back their thumbs up to jiggle between 
the room, the phones, the consigner in the room, um, the CEO of Philips was standing there. Um, he told me he never saw anything like it in his life where the opening bid was 10 times the auction estimate. He said, in my 35 years at the auction industry, I've never seen anything like it. Incredible and uh, very uh, special and memorable moment for for you and, and Livia to to be a part of that as well. Huge honor, huge pleasure, huge privilege, and one of the greatest moments also for the team as a family and the whole community. And that's not the only auctioneering record that you've held before, is that correct? Well, you, there's plenty of world records I've, I've had in my life. Um, now, sometimes it's just a world record for a reference of a certain brand. Um, sometimes it's for the brand as a whole. Um, yes, we still, I still believe we hold the world record for Omega, um, for Rolex, uh, pretty much every Patek Philippe reference, especially vintage. Um, it's not what I think is how I define myself. Uh, my job is, my business card doesn't say record breaker. I don't even think it's my mission. My mission is to bring the greatest watches to the market and connect them to new owners. And somehow in between, I feel it's my duty to do justice so that the seller can go home and say, great result. I got the money I wanted. Now I can, I don't know, buy myself a bike, a car, a house, whatever. But that the buyer as well says after the auction, you know, it was a tough battle to get it, but I'm really happy that I got it. And when you have both clients, the seller and the buyer saying, thank you, somehow that's so much more gratifying than being on another blog with another world record. And it just happens as a, as a, as a nice casualty at the side. You know, I know that you have a love for watches. You know, you collect yourself. And, and as a collector, I'm curious, what are the limitations if you wanted to bid on something in an auction? Well, there's two limitations. First, it is normal and totally understandable that I or every other specialist cannot buy in their own auctions. We have a compliance department, and so do all the other leading auction houses as well, where you cannot be, on one hand, auctioneer, specialist, bring the watch in, participate in the catalog, and then even participate as a buyer. I think there would be too many conflicting interests at once. What I can do, of course, is go to any watch shop in the world, um, check out their inventory, and buy it if I one, two, because this is a public offering where I do not have any conflict of interest because the seller is not in any way associated to me. Um, and it's, you know, you guys, you could also go there and buy it. Then, of course, the biggest problem is, yes, the money. How many great watches have I seen? And I'm like, oh, my God, this is so great. How much is it? I'm like, oops, sorry. Thanks for the champagne and goodbye. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure it's not just in watches. How many nice houses would I like to buy? How many nice collector cars? How much could I spend in great art? I am who I am, and my bank account isn't the one of Mr. Zuckerberg. Um, and I just live with it. That's okay. 
dreams are there to be dreams. Absolutely. And and so you mentioned something when, when we had said that you collect watches. You said you're not sure if you're a collector and what really makes a collector. So before I, you tell us whether you're a collector or not, can you, from your perspective, tell us what you really think makes a collector? Because I would assume that there's a lot of people that come to the auctions that buy watches the same way you do, and maybe they consider themselves a collector, and maybe you don't consider yourself a collector. It's absolutely possible. I think you cannot define or identify a collector only by looking at his collection. Now, just because I, I call it collection, you could just say the group of items of a certain type. I mean, I'll just give you an example. I put five omegas on the table and say hey guys do they belong to a collector or not you say i don't know why not there are the five watches look at them because i think it's not what he has but with what type of intellectual emotional background he's approached the topic how much time how much sweat and tears have gone into this so just calling a group of items of a certain type your own doesn't make you a collector. When I think of collectors, I'm thinking of those guys who, I don't know, butterflies, coins, and their mission is to put together a collection where he can say at the end, I have them all. I have every type of butterfly from the Amazonas or I have every type of coin from the Roman Empire, from Julius Caesar to all the way to whomever, or every V12 Ferrari model that was ever made. That's the classic collector, probably quite intellectual and very structured and very disciplined. Today, I see a very new type of collector where you can have one Paddock, one Rolex, one Omega, one Vacheron, one Tissot, one Ulysse Nardin, one Richard Mill. And you say, there's no theme. What is the theme? And the theme is, I love them. I enjoy them. I want them. They make me happy. They stimulate me. They make me feel special. I wanted them and I hunted them. I suffered. I saved. So it's the whole motivation that actually makes him a collector, even though there is actually no theme or, or discipline whatsoever um, in, in, in bringing a group, a thematic group together. I'm possibly more of the latter. You would look at my watches. You couldn't tell if I'm a Rolex guy or an Omega guy or a Paddock guy. There's a bit of everything. Probably more steel than, than, than gold. I, I think steel looks much better on my wrist. Only comfortable watches. Nothing too outrageous as in uh, design, too daring. But you couldn't tell what kind of a person is behind this. Now, do I suffer as much as the hardcore theme thematic collectors? Oh, for sure. I get up in the morning, I check my emails, I go on so many different blogs and websites, not because it's my professional duty. I love the topic. I love watches. I'm addicted. I say it openly. So depending what parameters you apply, you can call me a collector or not. 
probably 50 years ago, nobody would have given me that privilege. Today, probably I'm, I'm part of this young, anything goes as long as it makes you happy generation. So in terms of your personal addiction, we'll say, do you prefer modern or vintage? Like is something like a Bulgari Octo too daring? It's funny you should mention the the Octo. It is actually quite high up on my shopping list. So it's not too daring. I find it amazing how uh, Bulgari was able to transform and perfection a Genta design. And Genta, going back to Royal Oak and Nautilus, is probably the designer of the second half of the 20th century in watches. And I can see 2021 being the year that I'm going to offer myself because I have nobody else who's offering it to me, unless you have one of your followers and um, (laughs) the guys who listen to it who just want to spoil me. Um, I guess I have to pay for it myself. I can see myself buying an Octo. I haven't figured out yet, is it going to be titanium? Is it going to be steel? Is it going to be with or without complication? Um, I think it's a great watch. To answer your question, vintage or modern, I wear both, um, today vintage, yesterday modern. Um, I alternate all the time. Modern is often, I agree, and I admit it, more practical, more easy, uh, a no-brainer. You don't have to be too concerned, but the amount of emotion a vintage watch can give you when you touch it, when you feel hand-polished surfaces, uh, edges, uh, the winding, everything sounds and feels better and wears better. And those goosebumps are, are definitely irreplaceable and you can't get them in, in, in contemporary watches. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah. All right, Aurel, let's, uh, let's wrap things up here with uh, the what we like to call the collector's gene rundown. And uh, we're just going to ask you these quick questions. Feel free to answer them personally or about collecting in general or auctions, whatever you feel is uh, best. Ready to go. All right. What's the one that got away? The, uh, the one that you missed, can't get over. Um, this could be for an unnamed collector as well that maybe you've had an interaction with. Oh, I think one of the greatest uh, two problems collectors have are those uh, items they sold too early that they felt in a certain moment maybe tempted by a nice offer and regretted it ever since, or those items they could have bought and didn't have the instinct or the vision or the courage to buy. I know both of these feelings too well. I was never sorry for having bought something and regretted the purchase, but for having parted or not bought something. My earliest uh, recollection of such a regret goes back to when I was a teenager. I had a absolutely mind-blowing, mind-blowing early Omega Seamaster. Nothing like, not not like a museum watch. In yellow gold, uh, quite unusual. And I remember it had a black honeycomb or engine-turned dial. And I found that watch in a flea market didn't pay much. And one day, a rather ruthless and obviously wealthier man than I was as a teenager, clearly, made me an offer I couldn't refuse. 
because it would suddenly put me into the league where I could buy myself a bike. Um, I could go and take out all my friends for ice cream as much as they wanted. The amount of money seduced me. And for now, 35 years, I regret that watch. And I haven't seen it since. Wow. Great, great story. Un- unfortunate, but, but a, a great story to share yeah. for sure. Yeah, that's one, of the, that's one of the best ones you got away that I've heard yet. My, my advice to collectors, never let the money blind you. Yeah. yeah, I've been there too, for sure. I let go of a uh, Omega 32T RG with an incredible inscription on the back from a family to a doctor. And uh, I, I don't know what the doctor did to deserve that watch, but at the time I wanted something else that caught my eye and definitely shouldn't have sold it. But luckily, once in a blue moon, they, they still come around. A great Omega chronometer. With the RG is one of the most beautiful watches in the world. So I can just imagine your your pain in your heart. Exactly. So for now, I'm just going to keep buying stuff to uh, take my mind off of it. Keep, yeah. keep the lust going. <laughs> yeah, he's sweating. I can look at him right now. He's sweating just talking about it. <laughs> um, so what about the on-deck circle? Like, I know you are, you spoke about the Octo, but what, what after that for you? Or, or even what collectors should be on the lookout for, like the next thing? In a perfect world, I wouldn't have to answer that question. Why? I don't want to influence anyone. I don't want people to say, I bought an Octa because Arl Back said so. (laughs) Imagine you would say, what kind of a spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend should I look out? Well, six foot tall, blonde, blonde. What? No, go after your own love and, and, and whether he or she is tall or short or who cares? So go after what you like and what makes you happy. If the question is rephrased, what is currently undervalued? And for the one who does need to think of, you know, savings and, and, and college fund of their kids, um, I would continue buying Zenith, early Zenith, especially the El Primeros. I would buy IWCs, a brand that I've been growing up when I was a teenager as Schaffhausen and Zurich are just, you know, 50 or so miles away. Um, the, the engineer line from the 60s, 50s and 60s, the aqua timers, I think they're still undervalued. Um, they're still great omegas, especially like the Seamasters, the Constellations, and the chronometers to be bought. There's plenty of watches in the low to mid thousands that are absolutely iconic 20th century designs and, in my view, deserve uh, more attention. In in terms of my question for the for the uh, IWC engineers, the forty millimeter models have gone up in value, in my opinion, quite a bit. And obviously, I think there's still room. But um, what do what do you think about the thirty four millimeter models that are uh, you know automatic still? Yeah, I mean the, the the first engineer model I believe was the reference six six six. No nonsense design from the 50s with the Peloton designed uh, in-house automatic movement. I think you can pick up a very nice example between five and seven thousand dollars. It was a better watch back then, comparing it to the 3417 Amagnetic by Patek Philippe. That was manual wind, of course. Patek Philippe, great name. I completely understand and the finish on the movement, but a good Amagnetic is now way north of $100,000. And I think the RWC gives you nearly as much pleasure on the wrist, the 666, 
And then I think the successor was the 866, a little junkier. And you can still get them for very good money, a fraction of what a comparable anti-magnetic paddock would have would cost you today from the same period. Definitely. So uh, to bounce off that, what's the unobtainable for you? The one you can't have, maybe it's too expensive or in a museum or a private collection? I mean, for any watch aficionado, a visit to the Patek Philippe Museum is pretty much the most masochist um, treat you can do yourself. You will see pocket wristwatches, and actually quite many of them I've had the pleasure of handling and selling to the museum in the last 25 years. The Briggs Cunningham 1526 is one of the most beautiful paddocks ever made, totally understated, one-off, made for him, the great you know, sportsman and collector. There's obviously the Graves watches. So the Paddock Museum and also, of course, the Audemars Piguet Museum, the Breguet Museum, museums are pleasure and pain at the same time for a collector. Too expensive? Well, actually, often that goes hand in hand. The unobtainable is pleasure, um, inspiration, and suffering, and admiration at the same time. Very weird mix of, of feelings. Yeah, I agree for sure. I think I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear this from you because the addiction to watches, the page one rewrite, if you could collect one thing, like turn back time and start collecting something, what would it be? Well, I can still do it today. And uh, by the way, um, I've always, um, my my collecting taste and my focus in collecting um, has always shifted. If you would see what I'm buying today, whether it's in art or in design or uh, in watches, and you would have told me that 10 or 20 years ago that this is going to be my future, I would have told you, get out of here. This is not me. This is so not me. How can that be? So... Of course, I I can say what I regret not having bought quantities of, well, for commercial reasons. Um, I guess if I had put all my money together, all my money, 25 years ago, I could have afforded a basket for a couple of $10,000. Well, forget about it. That's That train is, is gone. I could have bought tons of Paul Newman's at $2,500. 25 years ago. Tons. Now, I only need one. I don't need a box of 50. From a commercial perspective, it would have been equally good to buy a a box of Paul Newman's. Of course, Bitcoins, Tesla, Amazon. How many shares did I not buy when friends told me you should? But that's now a financial uh, consideration. And anything I didn't collect 20 years ago, I don't have a problem with that because it's. I can still collect it today, assuming I can still afford it, which is not the case with, you know, Ferrari 250s and <laughs> Cartier Tutti Frutti and Royer furniture and many more gorgeous things. Who's the goat for you in the collecting world? As a collector and probably if you were to do um, 50 of such interviews in the watch world, I guess 48 times um, he would be mentioned, and that is John Goldberger. He's, to me, really the finest. 
but for a number of reasons. First of all, I don't even know more than a tiny fraction of his collection. He's started, I think, close, no, actually, yeah, close or over 40 years ago. When it took you $10 here, $20 there, $50 there, $100 here to buy the great names in today's auction world. So he did it purely like you and I would today call um, collect matchboxes. Um, not, nothing prestigious. There were no auctions. Nobody would applaud. Nobody would interview you. He did it for himself. He never did it for commercial gain. His collection is eclectic. Um, he has themes. He has a great passion for Cartier. He has a great passion for Omega, for Longines. He accepts to make mistakes and eventually fix them by selling a not-so-intelligent acquisition and, and say, okay, such is life. You can't always uh, be right. He's extraordinarily gracious and generous with sharing information. That, I think, makes also a great collector. You don't just say, me, 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 and the less I share or the more I even mislead you, the better I can buy or collect. He empowers others to actually even be competitive at auction or at a show, which is extraordinarily unselfish. It's a community service at its best. And as, as, as formal as he may sometimes appear, he has a huge heart, one of the most generous men I've met. Um, it is public knowledge. He sold the unicorn white gold Daytona with all the proceeds going to charity, an amazing charitable donation. So he's pretty much a man that ticks every box in the collecting world, in the watch collecting world. What about the chase or the sale? Do you enjoy the hunt more or the ownership? Well, if I, if I may just reword it, I think the career of a collector and, and an item are hunt, acquisition, ownership, and possession, and then eventually one day they part again. I think the most satisfying to me are those on the early stage, whether it's in my function as a hunter for Philips, um, I also contribute consignments to the Philips auction, collectors who want to talk to me and I bring their watches to, to the auction. The most satisfying is the discovery, the initial contact, the research, the negotiation, the hunt, the moment we secure it, then the temporary ownership that we as specialists at Philips have that means the two, three, four months that we live with an item between the moment this contract, the consignment agreement is signed and the auction. Yes, of course, the auction is very satisfying because it you know, does justice to the watch and our work, but it's actually so much more fun, the early phase. And I feel the same as, um, as, as a watch nerd. The dreaming, the waiting, the suffering, the hunting, the discovering, this first sort of should I, shouldn't I, sort of the flirt with the object, all the way to, yes, I go for it, to the moment you put it on your wrist, yes, she's mine, on my wrist, that ownership is extremely satisfying. The sale, even if somebody like with that Omega that I mentioned earlier on as a teenage boy, is eventually resulting in, in, a, in a commercial uh, gain is actually kind of not even that exciting. 
Totally makes sense. All right, let's finish up with uh, what I think is is the most important question everyone's going to want to know from you. Well, the second most important question, the first most important question, we're not going to ask you because we know we won't get the answer. <laughs> so the uh, what makes the, you so the most sure? important question? <laughs> All right, maybe we could try it. All right, who, who bought the Paul Newman? <laughs> Oh, that question. Oh, sorry, guys. Um, sorry, there's a poor line. I can't hear you. <laughs> yeah, going Dis- through a tunnel. Disconnected. But I'll, I'll but I'll say it again for 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 your group of collectors. Um, it's in a very 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 worthy home. The gentleman who was on the phone to Natalie. So you see, I already exclude half the world's population. It wasn't a lady. Is a absolutely wonderful. Fine, distinguished, passionate, worthy new owner of that watch. It found a good new home. I appreciate the uh, kind words of you talking about me so highly. (laughs) And for all those who say, oh, oh, gosh, um, I've I've heard it all. What company apparently bought the, 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 um, the watch? It's not a company who bought the watch. Just for those who wanted to to speculate. Good to hear. Not a fund, not a not not a Wall Street investment fund, nor um, a speculator of any kind. It's really a proper good new home for the watch. Glad to hear it. Yeah. What is your other question? Do you feel that you were born with the collectors, Gene? <laughs> After our conversation, I think yes, because I didn't. I just look at the screen and I see we've spoken for an hour. It feels like we started ten minutes ago. So that already shows me that it's easy and the most natural thing to talk about my, <laughs> my my addiction. If you felt that I put passion and there was passion and love in my voice when describing a watch or describing the situation of the Paul Newman auction, then I think I am kind of worthy to be called a collector for sure, I inherited genes that accelerated that pro- process because my dad, um, everyone in my family is, I don't know if it's amassing, hoarding, uh, chasing, accumulating. They all love to hunt the, the flea markets, the antique shows, the auctions. It's, uh, I think it's a family thing, yes. I'd have to agree. And uh, I just want to take the time again to thank you so much. This has been an awesome conversation and a really, really cool perspective that we were so stoked when uh, you decided to come on. So we want to thank you and it's been a blast. Listen, guys, it's been a great pleasure. Um, Hope you're safe and maybe one day in person, not just over the web. Uh, We can meet somewhere in the middle. Um, Would love to welcome you to any of our Philips exhibitions or auctions around the world. Yeah, we'll meet you in New York next time. Great. Thanks, Rel. It was my pleasure. Bye-bye, guys. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, that does it for this episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been Collector's Gene Radio, signing off. <laughs>